I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. Welcome back. So today we have a very special guest with us. We have Dr. Nick Johnson, an emergency room physician who is on the front lines in a hot spot of COVID-19. And uh, not only do we have the pleasure of hearing his experience from that, but we also know that uh, Dr. Johnson has a very deep background in EMS. So you were both a medical director. You rode the box for a while. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming in today and uh, and sharing your experience with us. Absolutely. And, uh, so if you don't mind, go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience, where you went to school, where you're from, and why do you care so much about EMS? All right. Um, so yeah, my name is Nick. Um, from Chicago, uh, went to school, pretty much never left the state of Illinois for more than a few weeks at a time until I moved here to Georgia recently. But went to college in Illinois, University of Illinois, med school at Loyola University of Chicago. Um, And that's where I really started getting um, into um, emergency medicine and and EMS and field medicine. Um, Lived in the city of Chicago um, during med school and got involved with Chicago Fire after getting my EMTB and kind of quickly realized that I didn't really enjoy sitting in a classroom for the first two years of medical school. I really wanted to get out there, treat patients, and get my hands dirty. So um, once every month or so, I would ride 24-hour shifts with the West Side and South Side, Chicago Fire Department rigs, and just learn from seasoned paramedics who've been doing this for 20 years in crazy situations. And it got me hooked pretty quickly to emergency medicine and EMS. Um, Intubated my second patient ever in the back of a box. Started my first lines with Ambulance 23 on the west side of Chicago. Um, learned how to push Narcan very slowly. Uh, you know, things like that. Uh, <laughs> That's a tough lesson to learn. Uh, yeah. Um, but it was great. Um, it was fun. I loved being out in the field. Um, you know, plan ones, they, they call disasters plan ones. And, uh, it would be mass casualty events. Um, and hey, when you're out there as a second or third year medical student, actually helping triage and getting people to the right um, locations and, and doing life-saving interventions, that's something unheard of um, for somebody in medical school that I can only get in the field. Um, and I just kind of owe a debt of gratitude to EMS, I feel, after, after that. Um, worked as a ER tech on the west side of Chicago as well um, for a few years. And, you know, hey, um, after being the low guy on the totem pole for a few years, it, it definitely gives me a good frame of reference about, um, you know, everyone's job in the ER. And I, I try to take it upon myself uh, as a physician now to know how to do everyone's job, uh, whether that be putting full catheters in or stocking shelves or operating equipment, because I think that's number one helpful. And number two, it can really um, you know, give empathy for um, all the staff, whether it be nursing, techs, you know, paramedics, EMTs coming in and out. Um, that that really helped put that in frame of reference. Um, but hey, after med school, I went to residency at University of Chicago on the south side. And um, after that, started working in a small town, I won't call it town, small city, just on the 
Indiana side of the Illinois-Indiana border called Gary, Indiana. Um, not too many people know Gary, Indiana from around here, but from the 10 years I worked there, five out of those 10 years, it was the number one deadliest per capita place to be in the nation. Um, there was a one out of a thousand chance that you would die a violent death if you were a, a citizen of that city. So you know, really poor, really crime ridden, but um, it was really a good place to make a difference. I saw a lot of awful things, but got really good at managing penetrating trauma, really sick people, sick kids, great experience. Um, during that time, I, I became a first medical director for Northwest Indiana uh, for the EMS system there, and also for the paramedic education program with our hospital, Methodist Hospitals. Um, and uh, yeah, just trying to be involved ever since. And moved to Georgia uh, three years ago, um, moved here with the current ex-wife, Hey, don't regret a thing. It's great here. Work with a great group of docs at Northeast Georgia Health Systems in Gainesville and uh, starting to get involved in EMS as well up here um, as the uh, medical director for the Lanier Tech Paramedic Education Program. Great group of guys and um, hoping to continue that relationship going forward. So what what is, since you've been on both sides of this, uh, from the scut work, boots on the ground, up now, to a physician, if you were to have to put this in a nutshell, what's been the biggest disconnect uh, overall between pre-hospital and in-hospital, not even just necessarily emergency department, but across that whole system? What's been the, the biggest disconnect? Expectations um, that when you roll up on a scene and see someone, an extremist doing poorly, you have no information about that patient. And, uh, you know, in the 30 minutes that you, you know, stabilized, transported that patient, gathered some information, uh, sometimes the judgment that's placed upon you for either doing things or not doing things um, by the time you arrive with that patient is unjustified. Um, I really hate, I think, when nursing or physician staff, you know, complain about a patient not having an IV when they come into uh, the ER. They have no idea what that uh, ENT paramedic went through, uh, you know, to get that patient even into the ambulance, let alone start a line. Um, yeah, I think a lot of that, if they spend some time in the field, they'd understand that. So, yeah, expectations. Um, I, I don't think you should have many. I think you should just uh, understand that every situation is different and novel and um, trust judgment of your field providers. So with that judgment, with, with exactly what you just said, it's it's a very unique time to be in the field of pre-hospital medicine right now because we all know COVID-19 is going on right now and you can be an asymptomatic carrier and also have respiratory issues. So that's whenever you're bringing in these patients and the decisions being made of should I have given a NEB treatment? Should I have, you know, how do you treat these patients? So this is a conversation that's been going on in the pre-hospital setting. And I truly do think it varies. You know, sometimes if you bring a patient in strictly on a CPAP, you may get chewed out by the nursing staff. Or, you know, if you if you start a NEB, then you could be endangering your whole crew. So that is, you know, when we talk about expectations. That's honestly one of the big things that we wanted to bring you here for. Can we lay out the expectations and can we do some case studies on what would you do? You know, you've been in the back of the truck, you've worked in the pre-hospital setting, you're a medical director. 
you know, what would you do if you were in the back of the ambulance with, you know, some of the patients that we're about to talk about? So first, when you're talking about giving medical advice in this current setting, especially as it relates to COVID-19 patients, it's extremely frustrating for me, for myself, as somebody who really pushes evidence-based medicine, especially with any teaching. In this situation, being that this is a novel virus and we have had no time to have had adequately powered studies about what works and what does not work, what's harmful and what's not harmful uh, for patients with suspected COVID-19, I have to say that, number one, I would be incredibly weary of people giving advice when they speak of absolutes um, because there are no absolutes. No one knows anything when it comes to COVID-19. Um, we are extrapolating a lot of data that we know about influenza patients toward COVID-19 patients, and we're um, using a lot of assumptions and, and, and science um, when we talk about what we should and should not do. But when it comes down to it, we just haven't had the time um, to put together adequately powered studies to show what truly is harmful what's, and what's helpful for patients. Um, so be aware of anybody who talks in absolutes. What, I'm, what I would be telling you now could be totally incorrect a month from now um, because, again, we're dealing with a lot of assumptions and science-based things that could be completely disproven by evidence-based medicine. For instance, the hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin combination being beneficial for people with COVID-19, it was ridiculous when I heard, and I know you'll laugh, but like uh, Dr. Oz going on national TV after uh, there was a small study <laughs> in Italy that came out of like 10 or 15 patients that got hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin and two of them, which were kids, like ages of 10 or under, and a, a 10 or 15 patient study this Italian doctor said this drug combination of hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, works and cures people of COVID. And then, you know, Dr. Oz gets on the internet or TV and says it's unconscionable to withhold hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin for somebody with suspected COVID-19. That was a ridiculous statement, and it's just not, uh, it's not socially just to talk in absolutes because it was a horrible study. Um, it was completely underpowered, and yeah, it, it probably ended up being disproven. There's been some studies that show that with more power ran out of the VA that have kind of said the exact opposite and might harm people. I'm not sure if the combination is harmful or, or if it's just in the middle of the road, but don't talk in absolutes. Just understand that this is a, a situation that's completely in flux, and uh, what we're talking about today might be wrong three months from now. It's mm, a really good point. So what if we, uh, what if you respond to an asthma patient, just a regular, you know, you get called out, dispatch says that they have been isolating. There's no fever. Um, they, you know, most dispatch or most 911 services now have a pre-questionnaire that they'll ask their patients. So dispatch says the patient's clear of any type of COVID type questions. You respond, general PPE is gloves, N95, and goggles now. I think that's pretty widely accepted across the board pre-hospital. So you show up, patient truly does have wheezing. Knowing that they may be an asymptomatic carrier, what, you know, what would you recommend that our thought process should be at that point? Sure. And uh, around about how old is this patient? 
25, 25-year-old. 25 25. Okay, yeah, good point. Assume everyone has COVID. If you come into contact with them, assume that they have COVID, whether they're symptomatic or asymptomatic. Um, speaking really, although I assume everyone has COVID, if I walk into a patient's room and I'm really underwhelmed with any possibility of COVID symptoms, I'm still wearing my mask, I'm still wearing my gloves, but I'm maybe tearing down that sign that says everyone needs to gown up when they come into the room for uh, EKGs or blood draws or whatever. Um, the point being, we're talking about this asthmatic guy, assuming he has COVID, uh, but he also has a history of asthma and he's wheezing. Is, is this guy, is this 25 year old guy, is he in respiratory distress or is he sitting there chilling? Let's say that he's he's in significant distress. Uh, you have you have wheezing, and you can see that he's becoming lethargic. So if you don't, okay. you know, take intervention, something's going to happen. All right. So you got to do something. But um, okay. So and here's the thing with COVID and with aerosolization and um, the possibility that any intervention could make aerosolization worse. And you know, by that meaning, you know, increased oxygen flow over six liters, nebulizer treatments, and even non-invasive uh, ventilation. Those things could uh, increase aerosolization. We're going to have a lot of our tools taken away from us. Um, that being, you know, hey, if I have a patient who has, and this isn't what we're talking about with asthma, a horrible COPD who is 75 years old, and I really don't want to intubate this person. BiPAP might turn them around, but I'd have to consider that BiPAP might expose people to aerosolization. So um, it takes one of my tools away and it really frustrates me. And I just unfortunately end up doing less than I want to for a lot of my patients. And that's something that I think field providers have to be more at peace with is that you're not gonna be able to do everything for a patient that you usually would want to. You're not gonna be able to make them as improved as you would like them to be by the time they get to the ER and just understand that. Um, point B for this guy, you gotta do something. Nebulizers, pros and cons, especially if I was in the back of a box with somebody, I would do absolutely everything I could to avoid initiating nebulizer treatment. Um, you're in an enclosed area, you're a few feet from the patient, you're gonna be exposed to aerosolized virus particles. Um, so really try not to do nebulizer treatments. Uh, option one, it sounds silly, but uh, albuterol MDIs. Um, I'm not sure if it's feasible to have a, a stock of MDIs in, uh, in the back of an ambulance, mm. but eight puffs with a spacer uh, can give you roundabouts the same amount of albuterol as in one single nebulizer treatments will, uh, if you have a patient that's awake enough to cooperate with that. Um, so albuterol MDIs, if you have access to them, great. Make sure you use a spacer, attempt that. I think the, the thing that would benefit the patient that you brought up the most is, get this, I am epinephrine. Mm. So you're dealing with a young, healthy, asthmatic patient in extremis. Hey, albuterol, only been around for maybe 50, 60 years tops, you know, inhaled albuterol. Before that, people still had asthma, but they weren't dying. We were treating them with injections of epinephrine and terbutaline, and they were doing okay. Mm. Um, you know, terbutaline, not so much we're going to be using anymore, but epinephrine, everyone's got epinephrine. 
everyone's scared to give epinephrine. Not everyone. A lot of people are scared to give epinephrine sub-Q NIM. Um, I would not hesitate to give anybody under the age of 50 epinephrine, and I'd probably be okay giving it above 50 as long as I was pretty certain they weren't having any evidence of demand ischemia or, or, or heart failure. Um, so I think epinephrine should be one of your first go-to medications for treatment of asthmatic with any form of distress. Mm. Uh, plus or minus albuterol MDS. Yeah, that brings up a great point with those MDIs. I mean, that's something that these services can be thinking outside of the box to to use as tools. That's a great idea. And uh, I know they're a little costly. Um, MDIs can run, you know, upwards of 40 or 50 bucks a patient as opposed to ampules of nebulized albuterol, which are pennies. Um, so that might be a, um, a barrier, but hey, when it comes to patient safety, uh, taking care of yourself, I, I think it's money well spent. Well, this may be even opportunity to, you know, if you've got a 25-year-old asthmatic patient, they've got their own MDI. Hey, yeah. Maybe this is a time for to, to have somebody go get that, you know, maybe at 25, you don't have a spacer, um, and maybe that's something that actually you could provide uh, on an ambulance for mm. people's own MDIs. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, um, epinephrine would be probably my first-line treatment for this gentleman. Probably albuterol MDI if I had that at my disposal. Um, magnesium, great smooth muscle relaxer, has some decent data for it for um, bronchodilatation and treatment of uh, bronchospasm, acute bronchospasm. So, yeah, um, established IV, two grams magnesium over about 15 minutes. Doesn't need to be put in over drip tubing, just eyeball it. Um, hey, a healthy person can take two grams of mag in five or 10 minutes uh, without any issues. It can cause respiratory depression if you give it really quickly, but if you give it 15, 20 minutes, it shouldn't cause any issues. Um, magnesium can be very helpful. Um, so steroids. Steroids in the field, I have a love-hate relationship, most, <laughs> mostly hate. Um, <laughs> I never understood why we are giving steroids in the field. Like, hey, guys, this is a medication that doesn't really start to work for, at the very best, four hours. Like, hey, if you're an hour away from your hospital receiving institution, maybe I can see that. But why are we so excited to give 125 of when it's not going to do anything for the patient? until way into their stay in the ER. Hell, they might be discharged home by the time that medication <laughs> takes effect. Um, <laughs> doesn't, if, you're, if you're looking to start a line on the patient just to give them steroids, don't freaking start a line on them. Hey, you can if you think they're, they're, they're about to crump and you're thinking, hey, this guy might need you know, RSI when he, you know, or you know, sometime before he gets to the hospital or when he gets to the hospital. That's fine, but don't start an IV just to give Cyamedrol, especially when it relates to COVID-19. So again, this is extrapolated from what we know about things like influenza, but people with bad viral pneumonias tend to not do so well if they get steroids, especially ongoing. You know, whether you're going to really harm somebody with a single dose of steroids, probably not. But are these patients, you know, are all these patients that were routinely in the past a year ago continuing them on a five-day steroid burst? Are 
are we doing that for as many patients now? Definitely not. Um, I personally have been really curtailing my amount of steroid medications I give um, and being very picky and choosy about who gets those steroid medications. Um, and it has to be the absolute clear cut history of bronchospasm um, with no other confounding issues going on, no evidence of um, pneumonia or COVID changes on x-ray. Those are the people I'm comfortable giving steroids to. Um, so hold off on giving it in the field because it's not going to do any good until hours down the road and it might be harming the patient. Well, that really does bring some good clarity uh, for me personally, you know, because I've had that patient recently <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a lesser of two evils. So <laughs> do, do you let them just, do you give them a breathing treatment on scene? <laughs> All right, buddy, we're going to put you on the back porch and let you have this breathing treatment for a while. <laughs> that That is pretty smooth, actually. Hey, like I thought about this um, before the call, but like it sounds kind of ridiculous, but like cracking the back door open when you're going down the road <laughs> will create a negative pressure situation and suck all the all the nubs out the back door, you know? Hey, I mean, if you got to do it, hey, I'm not advocating for it, but I wouldn't. <laughs> there's no way you would get me in the back of a box swimming in aerosolized nebulizer albuterol with a patient who may or may not have COVID-19. So let's say, let's kind of bring up the scenario that you were hinting at a little earlier. So let's say we have a 59-year-old female or male patient experiencing COPD, CHF. So again, like you just said, uh, everybody has COVID. We're going to suspect that everyone is an asymptomatic carrier. Um, so COPD, CHF exacerbation, blood pressure is 170 over 98. So you, you, you have enough room to play with some stuff. Mm -hmm. Heart rate is 100, coarse wheezing bilaterally, and her end title is 99 whenever you put on the nasal capnography. Um, and also mentation is very lethargic. So again, let's put Dr. Johnson in the back of the ambulance. What would you do if you were in the medic in the back of the truck? All right. So we got history of both. And you're getting at is we don't really know if CHF or COPD is the main issue or if it is truly a combination of both. That's our situation, correct? Yes, correct. sir. Okay. Um, first, you gave me the end title capnography. Um, those numbers you get from the nasal end title capnography, I usually don't pay attention to those numbers. Mm. Um, the only time I truly, I mean, hey, if you get 99, yeah, okay, they're, they're hypercapnic. I get it. Um, but most times you get a number that's somewhere in between 20 and 50, all right? And the only time I ever pay attention to quantified capnography is when we have an intubated patient. Mm. That's the only time that I really pay attention to that quantified entitled capnography. If I'm using the nasal cannula, you know, with a little you know thing that goes over your mouth, that little thing looks like a teardrop. Um, I'll, the only real, real reason I will institute that in the ER is if I need to know if someone is actually breathing. So looking at the actual waveforms and the frequency mm. of that, um, that's the only time that I find the non-invasive capnography useful. All other times, uh, you know, 99 times out of 100, I, I would call it, you know, not really helpful. Um, but hey, 99 again, yeah, this patient's going to be hypercapnic, right? 
Yeah, um, and we'll say her oxygenation is 79 or 80. Okay. Drop, uh, pretty low. I get it. All right, first things first, um, supplemental oxygen, right? Um, there seems to be this magic number of anything over six liters a minute might increase aerosolization. Um, again, that seems totally anecdotal. Um, there might be some evidence behind that. If there is, I'm not aware of it. Um, you know, try that first, of course. Um, non rebreathers have been told to create some amount of aerosolization. So try to avoid it for that reason and also for the possibility that she could be having a COPD exacerbation that could be, you know, worsening the respiratory drive with, with uh, too much oxygen, which totally is a thing, by the way, which I always thought it was complete BS, but uh, it happens probably one out of every 40 or 50 COPD patients. I, uh, I see too much oxygen and end up going into respiratory failure. You mentioned the blood pressure, and you mentioned it for a good reason. And with CHF, if it's on the differential and you're hypertensive, um, one of your first moves should always be after load reduction. Um, and after load reduction, decrease that blood pressure. You have a weak heart that's having a hard enough time pumping against a pressure, and you increase that pressure. You want to bring that pressure down. You know, kind of increase cardiac kind of output um, and uh, decrease the amount of uh, you know pulmonary uh, artery uh, pressures and, and help with pulmonary edema. And that is should be the main focus for CHF. And by after load reduction, nitroglycerin sublingual. If you have access to nitro paste, you know which it, you shouldn't be doing that in the acute onset. Nitro sublingual is probably the way to go bring that blood pressure down. And if it's truly from CHF, that will help quicker than most things other than positive pressure ventilation. Um, so getting that pressure down, that's important. On physical exam, you know, we talk about looking to see if someone's volume overloaded. Um, a common mistake I'll see people making is just looking at the legs. You can have legs that look like tree trunks with edema up to wherever, and that could be completely chronic, and that could be completely independent of uh, how uh, how volume overloaded somebody is. Um, but taking into consideration the most specific physical exam finding for hypervolemia is JVP. So that's not JVD, not jugular venous distension, which is the external jugular, but looking at the pulsations of the internal jugular when the patient's at 45 degrees. If mm. you see pulsations up by the jawline, that patient is volume overloaded. Uh, and more likely has some element of CHF, um, if that makes sense. Absolutely. That's a great point. Um, so, you know, after low reduction, oxygenation, trying to keep it below that arbitrary six liters. Um, and, you know, hey, positive pressure ventilation, right? Uh, we know it probably increases aerosolization. Um, if someone's in extremis and is truly lethargic and is going down the path of you need to do something or else they will go into respiratory arrest, <laughs> then, hey, I would probably put somebody on CPAP, uh, ideally BiPAP if you got it, but most of us don't, CPAP. Um, they do make some CPAP masks that have closed circuits um, for field use, but I think most of them are not closed circuit and will give some aerosolization and threat to you in the back of an ambulance. Um, but hey, I'm not going to let somebody die in front of me. Um, Absolutely. 
if it comes to that, you know, that I would do everything I could to avoid it. But if you needed to, you got to do it. What are your thoughts on mag for this patient? If the, if the blood pressure is high enough to support it. Hmm. It depends if I have someone who's working and tachypnic, I would consider it again, mag, you know, it relaxes smooth muscles. It also has other effects. It can slow respiratory drive to hmm. some degree. Um, I think it'd be reasonable to do. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you every patient that I see would get it, but I'd say probably most patients that you described, mag would be helpful, you know, bronchodilatation and maybe some element of after load reduction if you're lucky, preload reduction. So one thing we mentioned, we're talking about CHF. I think about Lasix in the field the same way I think about steroids in the field. If you're wanting to get a line to give somebody Lasix that you think is in a CHF exacerbation, you're probably doing the wrong thing. Um, uh, diuresis isn't something that is not a light switch, okay, right? It, it's going to take some at least a half an hour to maybe even start making more urine. And then again, if you're just making more urine, it doesn't mean that all that fluid is going directly from the lungs out through your piss. It's, it's you know, having fluid shifts and fluid changes. And if you think that giving Lasix is going to improve someone's pulmonary edema in the next hour or two, you're probably kidding yourself. Right. Uh, and especially, you know, when we're dealing with the possibility of pneumonia and sepsis and giving someone uh, some Lasix when, hey, you get to the hospital, you get an x-ray, you, you get some um, bedside ultrasound, and you learn that someone actually isn't volume overloaded and they're euvolemic or God forbid hypovolemic and you gave them a slug of ADA Lasix, uh, you just, you know, you harm that patient by giving Lasix. So, mm. so many of the patients, you have no idea. It's just, rest and it's not, uh, you know, they don't come with a label and, you know, hey, maybe I, I'll have, I'm working tonight, I'll probably have two or three patients the exact same situation mm. and I'm going to have to figure it out. And it's freaking hard for me to figure it out with x-rays and ultrasounds. Yeah. Um, Oh, you know, do it, well, uh, you know. Well, I think that that's an important piece to part to to um say. Then, you know, how do you, how does this how is this patient treated in the ED? Like, it's hard to treat him in the ED. How do you expect? You know, what what can be the expectation for EMS? Yeah. My expectation is to do no harm. That's my expectation. My expectation is, you know, avoid giving Lasix. You know, unless it's absolutely clear cut, hundred percent volume overload. This is a guy who you've picked up three times before in the past few months who never takes his Lasix, who's got, you know, freaking JVP up to his ears and, you know, tree trunks for legs. And he tells you, oh, last time they just gave me, uh, like, a couple doses of Lasix and they discharged me the next day. Yeah, freaking give him Lasix. Um, yeah, those are the nice patients that read the book and give you the clear-cut symptoms as if it's in <laughs> some sort of uh, testing scenario. Yeah, but it's never that way, right? It's never that exactly. way. Exactly. If you exactly. ever, and, and that's a, that's what the thing is, you know, again, like I have tools that I'll use x-rays, lab results, uh, bedside ultrasound. And even after all that, I'm still confused and I end up doing nothing because I just don't want to make the situation worse. Mm. And, you know, hey, I think some humility and just saying I'm going to do nothing and that might be the best thing for the patient. I think that shows a truly experienced provider. Um, and you know, I try to 
nail it home for some of the younger providers. Sometimes you have all these capabilities, you have all these medications, you have all this procedural knowledge. Sometimes the best thing to do is nothing. And you got to know when that is. Mm. Wow, that's huge. So let's go back to asthma for a second. All right. I, I love the idea of the epi, of the intramuscular epi versus, you know, going straight to the breathing treatment. Does that carry the same for a pediatric patient? So let's say, a, you know, a 12, 13-year-old asthma patient. Yeah. I mean, assuming that the kid or the parents are not idiots and they have, they've tried some bronchodilators at home, and this is a kid who's like, oh, yeah, I got a bad asthma except my mom's too cracked out to go get me an inhaler. Yeah, you know, maybe give that kid a, a nub treatment before, uh, you know, some epi. Um, you know, or if like, hey, you know, my inhaler is at my freaking other dad's house or something like that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> give the kid a nub treatment. But if this is a kid who has been sucking down treatments, who's still got retractions, epi is reasonable. Um, you know, with kids, they're probably caused nausea and vomiting a little bit more than you want to which is not a big deal just, just throw up maybe warn parents a little bit that hey i'm gonna give them this it's gonna help them it might make them feel a little weird it might make them throw up but hey it's gonna make their breathing better um yeah i think epi for kids uh i should i feel better about it than epi for a 50 year old that may or may not have cad and chf mm. Well, Dr. Johnson, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. I mean, this has been fantastic. This has been great. Um, I know I've taken a ton from it. I can't imagine what our listeners are taking from it as well. Yeah, I think the the fact that, uh, you know, owning this as a novel virus, and I really appreciated what you said about anybody going to make a definitive statement about this. They're an idiot because we just don't know. Um, but I think, uh, you know, we're required to continue to um, – try to find out. And that means we're going to have to be on top of this thing and have these discussions uh, and see how we best treat these patients within, um, you know, the guidelines that we have. Absolutely. Yeah. If anything, I hope this generates some discussion. If people disagree with me, I'd love to hear it. Hey, you know, if I'm wrong, we'll figure it out, man. We'll get it right sometime. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sounds great. Well, thank you again for your time, sir, and hope you have a good shift. All right, pleasure. Thanks. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.